Limerick is a small city on Ireland's west coast, where the River Shannon meets the Atlantic Ocean. My parents moved here in 1989, just before I was born, and I've lived here all my life. I love Limerick. It is a beautiful, salt-of-the-earth kind of place. Friendlier than its absent parents of Dublin and Belfast, and edgier than its older brother Cork and its artsy sister Galway. Limerick is a unique and underappreciated working-class city with a rich cultural heritage and a treasure trove of radical history. Limerick was well known for its ham and bacon industry, and Limerick docks played an important part in transatlantic trade. At the beginning of the 19th century, however, Limerick also played an important part in the Irish Revolution, and was well known around the globe for its socialist sentiments. On May Day 1918, a rally declared that we, the workers of Limerick assembled, extend fraternal greetings to the workers of all countries, paying particular attention to our Russian comrades who have waged such a magnificent struggle for their social and political emancipation. Less than a year after that resolution was passed by a crowd of 10,000 workers in Limerick's markets field, a Soviet was declared in Limerick City itself. Workers were on strike. They controlled food production and prices. They even set up their own police force and currency. Yet as we commemorate the centenary of this event, very few people in Limerick and worldwide have heard of this fascinating story of popular revolt, betrayal and tragic consequences. This podcast is an attempt to help promote that story, learn the lessons from the past and bring it to life for a new generation. I'm Kian Prendeville. And I'm April Scully. And over the next five episodes, we're going to investigate this event, talking to the key experts in the period and teasing out what we can learn from it for the struggles in the future. In this first episode, we will look at the background of the Soviet and what led to the decision of workers in Limerick to go out on general strike in April 1919. So, Kian, why did you want to do this podcast? What gave you the idea? So I've been a, a socialist activist in Limerick for, for the last 15 years almost. Uh, um, and I've always been fascinated. Wait, wait, wait. Say what age you are. 30. <laughs> and I've always been fascinated by the story of the Limerick Soviet. But I've been disappointed that the story is not out there more. That people, not enough people know about it. And I thought that for the centenary, um, wouldn't it be great if there was a podcast that could sort of document what happened and why. And try to bring this uh, event to a new audience. Okay, it's really important to raise the profile of these historical events, but it's more than just history, I think, for socialists, for people who want to struggle for change, for people who want to struggle against capitalism today. It's about looking at history, like, and applying the lessons, you know, that these previous activists went through. Yeah, history is a chance for us to study the the mistakes of the past and, and learn the lessons for the future. Okay, let's do it. You spent the last number of months reading books, interviewing historians, trying to get a sense of the events at the time and what was happening in Ireland, what was happening internationally. So could you maybe start with that just to give us a bit of context, um, what the fever was at the time? Yeah, um, I think that there was two big events that set the scene for the Limerick Soviet. Uh, the first was World War One. Uh, which started in 1914 and, and led to the deaths of millions of people uh, in, in an interimperialist war to decide who would run and rule uh, in Europe. 
but it also saw huge profits for, for big businesses. Um, and the second major event was the Russian Revolution, which was a reaction to that war, saw Russia pull out of the war as a result of the popular uprising. But it also toppled the, the Tsar, the, the royalty that had ruled Russia for centuries and sparked a revolutionary wave right across Europe, including here in Ireland. Okay, and what impact did that have on Limerick? Yeah, so in Limerick, the, the expression of that was the growth of the ITGWU, uh, the Irish Transport and General Workers' Union, which grew very rapidly in Limerick in response to very low wages, but also very poor housing, uh, um, quite a miserable standard of life for ordinary people. The ITGWU, just to clarify, that's the union that was set up by Jim Larkin and James Connolly, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Um uh, but it, it was founded nationally in 1907 by, by Larkin and Connolly. But it wasn't until 1917 that it really started to grow in Limerick. And I, I spoke to Dominic Hock, who's a local socialist activist and historian, uh, who wrote his PhD precisely on the growth of the ITGWU in Limerick. A number of attempts had been made to establish the ITGWU prior to the First World War. Uh, which failed. Uh, there's very little indication that it gained any kind of support in the period pre-1914. A concerted effort was made to organise the ITGW in Limerick in, in early September 1917. Uh, an industrial organiser was sent to Limerick. His name was MJ O'Connor, originally from Tralee. And uh, the union expanded quite rapidly as uh, soon as it was established. And by 1919, had about 3,500 workers organised in Limerick and uh, 19 branches in rural areas as well. So it expanded quite rapidly. Now, it wasn't the case that they were exclusively organising unskilled workers. Um, there were local labour societies, like the Dock Labour Society, who affiliated after, usually after strike action, usually after support coming from the Irish Transport and General Workers Union, they affiliated to the ITGW and became kind of branches within the ITGW as an affiliated member. Okay, Keen, that's pretty rapid growth, zero to 3,500. And like a very radical union too, recruiting lots of workers traditionally not organised by the unions. Yeah, exactly. And it just shows how open the situation was. People were looking for a union that would give a fighting lead. And workers who were organised in smaller local unions, when they saw the ITGWU in action, they joined up. In particular, as Dominic says, you'd have an example of, of, of workers who might go out on strike. The ITGWU would, would go out in solidarity with them. And at the end of it, the smaller union would say, actually, you were such support to us. We want to join up with you. Um, and that was part of their rapid growth was mm. recruiting those existing unions, you know. OK, so demonstrating their weight in practice. It's pretty effective. So at this time, who are the main characters that begin to emerge now and start to be like the key forces in history? Yeah, there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of people. Um, one person that the history books talk a lot about is is John Cronin, who would have been the, the head of the Trades Council, um, which was the group that brought together all the trade unions in Limerick. Uh, but actually, I think there's two main people who helped spark the Limerick Soviet. The first is, is Robert Byrne, whose death was the trigger that led to the, the strike that caused the Soviet. And the second was, was Sean Dowling, who was the ITGWU organiser in Limerick and was later referred to as the ideological begetter of the Soviet. Um, in terms of Robert Byrne, I talked to Mike McNamara, who's the current head of the Trades Council, who, who and he's done a lot of research into Robert. And in terms of Sean Dowling, in particular, I talked to, to Dominic Hock about Sean. Well, Robert Byrne was a, a young postal telegraph clerk. Um, he was 28 years of age at the time he died. Uh, his mother, Annie Hurley, was from Limerick, and they were business people and well-respected business people in the city. 
his father was a fitter from Dublin and uh, when Robert Byrne came into the post office first he went to work in Cork and he soon found himself back in Limerick then in around 1914 or 1915 where he was working in a GPO in Limerick. Robert Byrne was also the chairman of the local branch of the Postal Telegraph Clerks Trade Union. By 1916, uh, Robert Byrne had come to the notice of the police because of his involvement with the Irish Volunteer Force. And in particular, in uh, July uh, 1916, he had been observed at the funeral of the Fenian Mayor John Daly. Sean Dowling was a, a, a crucial figure, actually, uh, right throughout this period in Limerick Labour history. He was originally from Coven County Cork. He apprenticed as a fitter in Hall Bolin in, in the shipyards, uh, joined the Irish Socialist Republican Party at a very young age, probably around 13 or 14 years of age, and was the first worker in Ireland to be sacked for anti-war activity in 1914 by the British government because he was working in an area where the British Navy were operating and so on. He was a close confidant to Connolly. Uh, he was in Dublin in the run-up to the 1916 Rising and Colony ordered him to leave Dublin rather than participate in the Rising, uh, likely to try and just ensure that he, he, he didn't become a victim of what Connolly viewed was going to be a failed Rising anyway. And in uh, early 1917, he became the ITGW uh, industrial organiser in Tullamore, up until the time that he moved to Limerick to replace MJ O'Connor in early 1918. Okay, so Bobby Byrne is definitely a well-known figure, I think, from this time. Um, Sean Dowling, much less so, I think, as a Marxist um, obviously radicalised from a very young age, but wouldn't have, ha wouldn't have the same maybe notoriety that uh, Bobby Byrne would have. But one of the images that I have of the Limerick Soviet, Kean is the group of men all with moustaches, <laughs> which mm. when you think about then that it was women who led the charge, how does that, you know, how do those two images gel, I guess? Yeah, I, I think that's something that people don't really realise is that... Um one of the, the key workforces in the Soviet was the Cleves uh, a workforce, which was predominantly women. Uh, um, and it is, it's that photo of the, the, all the men that people have in their mind. Um, but that's something that came up again and again with people that I interviewed. Uh, and that there's this untold story of the role of, of women in the Soviet. Most of the women who were organised in Limerick at that stage would have been members of the Irish Transport and General Workers Union. And they were primarily organised in two workplaces, which would have been the Limerick Clothing Factory and uh, the Cleves plant in Lansdowne, the condensed milk factory and the caramel factory. And they would have been predominantly the areas. And it's, it's, it's not quite clear exactly how many were organised, but the estimations are around 600 women workers between the two workplaces. OK, I think that's a good then rebuttal to the idea that it was an all men or... That's the image that's betrayed. And a lot of the time that can happen at the start of the 20th century. It's just, it's very um, history, if you know what I mean. Like, I don't think that's the case now. I think the repeal of the Eighth Amendment, that was a struggle from below by women. Water charges, a lot of women set up community groups. So I think that that image has changed now. People can see the leading role that women play in struggle. But at that time, I think it's good even to have that historical references to say that, yeah, there was actually 600 women workers that led the 
the strike against um, or the strike for the Soviet. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that there's more work to be done in uncovering more stories. Uh, so there was w- one really interesting story that Mike Finn uh, told me. Mike is a, a playwright. He's produced uh, a, a new play on the Limerick Soviet called Bread Not Profits, which is, is running this April. Um, but, but he told me a fascinating story of one woman, Sally McGowan. Her story actually predates the strike, but she worked for uh, McKern's Printers. Um, and she was one of 12 young girls. She was quite young. She was in her early 20s. She was one of 12 girls in there who went on strike for, I think, a shilling a week extra. And she led her colleagues, the 12 other girls, into the, the ITGWU. And they went on strike with her as the leader of the strike. And the manager, a guy called Eakins, um, came up with a compromise. He said he would give them, I think, uh, six, six pence a week extra. He gave them some of what they were looking for, but on condition that they would leave the union. Uh, the 12 other girls left the union, but Sally McGowan didn't, and she, she lost her job. Um, she worked for a while in uh, a restaurant, and then she moved to America. But I found her story quite inspirational, and it tells us that there were certainly women who were engaged in, the, in, in politics, engaged in the worker struggle, engaged in trade unionism uh, and the trade union movement and so on. Just the sense that I get from the unions back then is that they're they were much more of a fighting beast than unions are perceived today. Yeah, I, I think part of it was the time um, that you had um, more of a revolutionary sentiment. People saw the need for unions a lot more. But part of it was also the, the ITGWU. It was a new union. It was a radical union. Um, it was organising unorganised workers. And actually, most of the, the trade unions in Limerick at that stage were what were called craft unions. They were exclusively for, for skilled workers and that practiced a certain craft, or almost like the old guilds. So you'd have a carpenter's union, a plasterer's union, things like that. Um, but the, the leaderships of these unions tended to be a little bit more conservative. The leadership of the Trades Council at the time was, was quite a conservative body. Some of the leading members, like John Cronin, had been a city councillor, had been an open supporter of the Irish Parliamentary Party for many years. Um, and initially they kind of would have welcomed the idea of the ITGW affiliating but very quickly they became concerned with the radical nature of the ITGW and uh, they saw it as a threat to uh, the position that they had on the Trades Council. So they were uh, um, trying to ensure that the ITGW wasn't becoming a dominant force on the Trades Council. For example, they refused to give the women's branch of the ITGW uh, full delegate rights on the on the Trades Council. So there, there was a constant conflict, sometimes at a low ebb, sometimes quite intense, between the ITGW and the leaders of the craft unions on the, the Trades Council. Okay, so you had this radical ITGWU with the likes of Sean Dowling, um, quite militant uh, socialist uh, union. And then you had these conservative craft unions and they kind of rubbed alongside each other Sometimes there's this explicit tension and then sometimes, as Dominic said, there was a low ebb, not so much. Mm-hmm. But how did these then all end up in a general strike? Like, how did this happen? Yeah. Well, well, that's where the, the story of, of Robert Byrne comes back into it, the, the IRA activist who was also a trade unionist. Um, and in January of 1919, he was uh, arrested and he was court-martialed for possession of a gun. Uh, Robert Byrne, as I said, when he was court-martialed on the 21st of January, he was uh, placed in prison awaiting sentence. And we note from our review of the police files and uh, the intelligence files at the time that Robert Bourne commenced a hunger strike almost immediately he went into prison. He was agitating other uh, prisoners in there looking for political status. 
He was the adjutant general of the second battalion of the IRA, so the most highest ranking member in the prison at the time. He decided to uh, set the pace for them by going on a hunger strike. Uh, they were beaten by the police. Uh, the barbarity uh, was probably the worst that had been seen in Ireland at that time. So what does Mike mean by political status? Um, yeah, so that's the idea that the IRA uh, prisoners, they would have been demanding to be treated as political prisoners. So rather than just being treated as any other common criminal, uh, that they would have been given extra rights, essentially. That they were locked up for their political ideas and should be given more rights to organise within the prison system, for instance. On the 12th of March 1919, Robert Byrne was uh, fairly ill at this stage from his hunger. So he was transferred under police guard to the Limerick Workhouse Hospital which we now know as St. Camillus's. Uh, there was a, a number of local units of the IRA were already planning his release um, once they knew he was going to be transferred over to the hospital. So now Bobby Byrne is out of prison and into hospital and the IRA are planning to break him out. Yeah, but hospital visitation was limited to Sundays. So they came up with a plan to break him out on, on Sunday, April 6th. Uh, the operation was led by Batty Stacks, who was one of two uh, IRA activists on the day who had guns. But there was 20 others who had, who had other weapons. And they went to help with the rescue attempt. Uh, Batty Stack um, had gone in already to visit Robert Byrne and indicate to him something was about to happen. Around 20 other people were making their way up the ward, uh, standing at the end of uh, patients' beds and saying hello and under the guise that they were there um, as visitors for those particular patients and slowly moving up the ward to get near to the top of the ward where Robert Byrne was held at the last bed adjacent to that room. At exactly 3pm then, Batty Stack sounded a whistle, which was the signal for them all to, to pounce. They give the signal then that they're going to pounce, if we can set the scene. What happens then? Uh, they blow the whistle. <coughs> Batty Stacks goes into the room that Robert Byrne is in. Uh, he pulls out his gun. Uh, Byrne tries to get out of bed, but one of the British officers throws himself on top of Byrne and pulls out his own gun. Shots are fired. There's a, a bit of a mixed claim as to who shot who first, um, but in the end, two British officers are shot, as is Robert Byrne. Um, and later that day, Byrne and one of the officers die from their wounds. What was the reaction of people in Limerick City to this, you know, shoot up in a hospital? Yeah, well, there, there was a massive outpouring of solidarity from people. People saw this as an IRA activist in his hospital bed, shot dead by a British officer. So Byrne's funeral attracted thousands of people. The, the British military saw that massive turnout as an act of defiance, and they tried to clamp down and reassert their authority in the city. There was an order signed on the 9th of April 1919 that the British military authorities, under the orders of Sir Frederick Shaw, the commanding-in-chief of forces in Ireland, proclaimed Limerick to be a special military area under the provisions of the Defence of the Realm Act. And notices of the order were signed by uh, C.J. Griffin, the Brigadier General, uh, Commandant of the Limerick Special Military Area, and it was published in all the national and local newspapers. Barricades were erected and a boundary was commissioned, uh, and hundreds of military personnel, along with the police, attended at the barricades, uh, where they had stationed tanks and armoured cars on all the approaches. On what basis did they declare martial law and erect barricades? Why? Well, they saw this massive turnout for the, for Robert Byrne's funeral as a provocation, uh, as a threat to their rule. And they felt that they had to come down hard to show who's boss. 
Uh, so they put tanks on the bridges, they put machine guns on the bridges. It meant that on your way to work, you had to pass through a checkpoint, uh, um, and on your way back, you had to pass through a checkpoint as well. And how do people react to this? Like, were they demoralised? Were they like, I'm going to fight this? Like, what? People were angry. Uh, um, so the, the Cleves workers in particular led from the front. They had a meeting on the, the Saturday, and they would have been some of the most affected by the barricades. Um, but they were also in the ITGWU, the majority of them were women, and their you know, organiser was Sean Dowling. So at that meeting, they took a, a vote to go on strike. And then on the Sunday, there was a citywide meeting of the, the broader Trades Council, which was also called to debate the idea of a, a, of a citywide general strike. But actually, in, in researching this, I, I came across minutes of a meeting of the Trades Council on the Friday beforehand, which, which referenced the debate which I think can shed a bit of new light on the dynamic on the, the Trades Council at the time. Here, Darren Maher, who's a local actor who also voiced the clip at the start of this episode, uh, reads out a section of those minutes. Mr Dowling, Irish Transport Workers' Organisation, said that it was his intention to hand in a notice of motion regarding altering rules of council. His first motion was that the United Trades and Labour Council should meet in Town Hall as it was the citizens' property and that the only place for the United Trades and Labour Council to hold their meetings was there. Chairman, that all alterations be submitted to the Executive Committee. Dowling, has the Executive a veto on all things? So Dowling is saying the union should have their meetings in Town Hall and it seems like the Chairman then is resistant to that. Yeah, um, but I think it's actually a bit more than that because Dowling isn't saying that they should ask permission to have their meetings in Town Hall. He's saying it's public property, so we should go and have a meeting there. In effect, okay. In effect, he's saying we should take it over, set ourselves up as the authority running the city. Um, and the chairman, who was presumably Cronin, um, is reluctant to do that. He's, he's tying it up in bureaucratic knots. Um, if you, you read through the rest of the minutes, and it ends without a decision being taken on this point, but then the very next day, Dowling organises the meeting of the Cleves workers, they vote to go on strike. And the day after that, on the Sunday, the Trades Council is back again meeting, this time to discuss a proposal for a general strike across the city. But this time they have thousands of workers outside the meeting lobbying the, the trade unions to support that strike. In the aftermath of the, the death of Robert Byrne, um, the British military authorities were trying to suppress the, the scale of uh, the sympathy and the support for Robert Burns' family in terms of the funeral. Large numbers attended with the removal of, of uh, his remains from uh, the college in Milik, and the British military were attempting to keep the numbers attending the funeral down. Now, the reality was that as an act of defiance, the mass of the population came out uh, for Robert Burns' funeral. And the British military authorities had indicated that if that was to happen, they would impose, um, they would proclaim the area. In effect, they would declare martial law in the area. They would throw a cordon around the city. Because the Cleves plant was on the north side of the river, any workers who lived on the south side of the river would now require permits to pass through the cordon. And that would have been the majority of the workers in the Cleves plant at the time. Um, and the workers in the Cleve plants were unwilling to accept this. The meeting took about 12 hours on Sunday. So it's clear that there wasn't unanimity on the Trace Council in terms of uh, calling the general strike. The proposal for a general strike appears to have come directly from the workers in Cleves, probably marshaled by Sean Dowling, who would have been the industrial organiser responsible for the branch 
in the Cleves plant. There is little doubt that the Conservative leaders of the Trades Council would have been hesitant about calling a general strike. But there was a very large demonstration outside of the Trades Council meeting at the Mechanics Institute, numbering possibly in the thousands. And I think uh, the, the pressure from the mass of the workers in Limerick at the time kind of tipped the hand of the leadership of the Trades Council and forced them into agreeing to call a general strike from Monday morning. That's the end of episode one of the Bottom Dog podcast. In episode two, we will look at how the strike developed and became a Soviet running the city. The podcast name pays homage to the Bottom Dog, Limerick's first ever workers' newspaper. It was launched in October 1917 as a socialist paper pledging to fight for what it called the Bottom Dog or Underdog, which it explained was all those oppressed, whether on the basis of class, race or gender. It said that every dog has its day and that its goal was to hasten the day of the Bottom Dog. I'd like to thank actor Darren Maher for the dramatisations, Dominic Hock, Mike McNamara and Mike Finn for the interviews, and a special thanks to Postpunk Podge for the music. This podcast was hosted by me, Kean Prendival, and my co-host, April Scully. Sound mixing was done by Marty Walsh. Thanks to Ray Burke of Wired FM for giving us some help and studio time there, and to Danny Scott for regular feedback and assistance throughout production. Finally, thanks to all those who donated and helped make this podcast happen. In particular, Solidarity Councillor Paul Keller, Louis Hemmings, Mary O'Donnell, Oshin Hannigan, Mike Murphy, Sammy El Syed, Oshin Prendival, Alan Byrne, Podrick Mulholland, and Noel Prendival, who all donated over €50. Euro. If you'd like to donate €2, euro, €5 euro or more, go to limericksoviet.ie. All donations go to creating and advertising this podcast. <laughs>